Aloha, I'm Ash. Aloha, I'm Matt. We are the yoga couple. Welcome back to the Inner Work Podcast. Last week was so amazing with the Spirit Woman Honor Your Bleed podcast. We are still getting so many messages uh, from women interested in reconnecting with their cycle and honoring the moon and honoring their bleed and the bloody goodness is still going (laughs) so it's still flowing and I just want to say I am so grateful to every single one of you amazing women who have reached out and even some guys have reached out who have been like yes finally I've been trying to uh, tell my woman that this has something Had to come from a woman. Yeah. <laughs> Can't come from us. So, um, <laughs> if you haven't already listened to that podcast, it was our biggest hit yet. And there was so much good information in there from Liana Preha from Spirit Woman. And I highly recommend you go back and listen to that podcast. It was so good. And if you're not already in the Spirit Woman Facebook group, we started a Facebook group so that all of us women could talk about which day we're on, talk about our tracking or journaling, the moon phases, ritual ceremony, and it's popping off in that group already. So make sure you check it out. But segueing into this week's podcast, it's all about the true yoga. And I'm really excited to talk about this because we are the yoga couple. (laughs) And we, as far as anyone on our social media sees, don't post any yoga photos, technically. Well, awesome. Yeah. And um, what is... Anymore, you know... It's like the first few years, that's all we really showed, you know, and then we realized, you know, what is true yoga to us though? Yeah. Is it just pure 100% asana? And that's kind of, I think, what led us to make this more true expression of what we think. So let's, what do you think, Ash? Yeah. How do you want to, I think that you have, I came into yoga, yoga philosophy later than her, so I want to hear her journey. Mm, I think that for me, when I first came into yoga, It was really because I was seeking answers and I had so many questions about, I don't know, my family, my life, my future. I was looking for my purpose, which we're definitely going to get into on Mm. this episode. And I fell into yoga because I was a seeker. And I don't think that's everybody's journey. I think a lot of people start yoga for many reasons and 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 a lot of people start yoga because it's just something that their gym offers and they want to get in shape or something like this but there's this switch that happens through the practice because the purpose of yoga as we're going to talk about with our special guest today isn't really about accomplishing anything especially anything (laughs) physical and if you do get into a really good practice or a really good class or have a really good teacher it soon becomes clear that this practice is so much deeper and there's a lot of depth to yoga and it might not be as uh, superficial as the yoga that we've been given here in America. And when you go back to its roots, you start to find that this is an ancient technology that is really has a purpose for bringing us into our true self, which is uninterrupted peace and joy Mm. and who doesn't want uninterrupted peace and joy and suffering less 
yeah, and to suffer less. And this whole system, this yoga practice is literally designed. It's like a roadmap for navigating the human experience to suffer less. Mm. And what if everybody knew that, you know, like what if the whole world had a roadmap to suffer less and could avoid feeling crappy, could avoid arguing, could avoid feeling purposeless and lost, could avoid um, confusion, like all the things we don't want in our lives. Like what if there was a way to do that? And yoga says there is a way. And I feel like that's what I mean, you and I are so passionate about. That's why we have the Inner Work Podcast because it's mm. all an inward journey. Yoga is an inward journey. And we just want to bring more light to the deeper parts of yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I even found yoga through studying psychology. Such so shows how obviously connected it must be. And when you really get into the depth of yoga philosophy it is incredibly psychological it is it is all about the inner world that's what's ironic because our western version has kind of externalized the benefits and the expressions of yoga in the form of the body and the poses but uh it's exciting to meet and read someone's book uh that we're going to have on our show today who fully gets the depth of the philosophy and the true spiritual teachings, the depth of what they really are getting at, and the goal of yoga being this enlightenment, this self-realization, this true, deep philosophical and psychological, you know, realization of our oneness with the universe, our oneness with God and divinity, um, source, whatever, you know, word we resonate most with. And what a powerful thing to realize that it's everywhere, but this true version this deeper perspective you know it's fun to get to finally reveal and kind of hopefully show people like hey there's way more than just doing these cool poses you know yeah so if you're a seeker like myself and Matthew and you are really in this place where you're you're ready to go there you know you're ready to figure it out and um, undo the things in your life that are not bringing you into your highest self, that are not serving your highest purpose, or you're interested in diving deeper into your yoga practice. Maybe you've been doing yoga asana and you really enjoy it and your teacher says some really amazing things at the end of class and during shavasana and you're just like, yes, I want more of that, that feeling I get when I lay down at the end of my practice and do shavasana. Or you're interested in, you know, getting that feeling you get from your meditation practice or just getting into the roots of this practice, this podcast, this episode is going to be for you because today we have a very, very special guest. Uh, Today we have Susanna Friedman, who is the author of Suffer Less, a newly released book that just became one of Matthew and I's favorites. On top of being the author of Suffer Less, Using Yoga Practices to Live a More Peaceful Life, Susanna also is a yoga teacher and yoga teacher trainer in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she leads workshops, teacher trainings, and festivals all over the world at places like Wonderlust and her upcoming retreat in Rishikesh, India, and she's just an amazing human being, so I'm really excited to bring her on to the podcast. Susanna Friedman, welcome. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, guys. Hi. We're so excited to have you on this podcast because this podcast is all about just diving deeper into um, the inner work of the yoga practice. And it was so refreshing to read a book that wasn't necessarily tips on mastering poses or (laughs) even doing like pranayama and like those cool practices. It was all about the inner practices of yoga and how yoga can lead us to a more peaceful life. And we just really both enjoyed it so, so much. Oh, great. I love hearing that. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like um, people are ready to kind of learn more about the practice. And every time I offer any sort of philosophy, whether it's in class or a special workshop or whatever the case is, people are so hungry for it. And they just want it explained in a way that's accessible. And I've kind of known for a really long time that I was supposed to bring the stuff that I know about whether it's Western philosophy or Eastern philosophy to a broader audience through a more sort of um, reasonable and accessible way of reading it or understanding it just because so much of the language is dense or esoteric or um, just seems not connected to current times when that couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, that was one of the things I really appreciated about your book is you really made the wisdom and the knowledge super accessible and it really didn't matter if you had any sort of religious preference. It was relatable to everybody who's just on the journey to more peaceful, more happy life. And I really appreciate that because sometimes, like you said, the the philosophy of yoga could seem a little bit, yeah, esoteric. Mm-hmm. So you really just simplified it and really made it digestible for everybody. So in your book, you talk about how you kind of came into finding yoga and you had a really interesting upbringing that I think is unique and most people don't have this experience. You came into yoga or maybe you weren't practicing yet but you found yoga at a really young age because it was introduced to you by your your family which is so unique to be so young and introduced to yoga so could you just elaborate a little bit more on um how yoga became a part of your life what was your journey with it and then going into studying religion and philosophy and getting your master's degree and 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 this whole journey yeah so i talk about it in the very beginning of the book but um I had kind of an abnormal upbringing in the best way. My parents sent me to a Hindu Sunday school. um, And then my mom used to have me go with her to sit satsang with visiting gurus. And the person who we sat with most was named Pandaji. He's now Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, who has millions of devotees around the world and is quite incredible. Um, I haven't seen him in years. And in hindsight, I really wish that I had, um, you know, kind of understood the presence that I was in, but I was four five and six years old. So I don't know really how much I would have understood, Mm. but it definitely, it definitely stuck with me. I mean, it was the first sort of, they were the first moral principles I learned. Yogic principles were the first moral principles I learned in a really broad sense, meaning like kind of the golden rule, just treat people how you want to be treated. And also I, I happened to learn the namaste prayer at a really young age. Wow. So even if I didn't, I'm not going to say as a kid, I acted on it, you know, like I wasn't, I was a kid. I was kind of mean sometimes and kind of a bully sometimes. And then I got my feelings hurt sometimes. You know what I mean? Like it, I was totally a normal kid, 
but I did um, just have a different sort of set of parameters around which to organize my actions. And I think that I didn't realize it that overtly at the time, but I can definitely see that looking back. And so I actually tried to do yoga asana a bunch of times uh, when I was in high school because it was at the time kind of when yoga was just beginning to come back into mainstream or just beginning to come into mainstream. And so it was really different. I mean, like no one was playing music. It was mostly hatha, like vinyasa wasn't as major. To be honest, I went to all these yoga classes because like all the pretty, thin, cool girls did. And I was like, (laughs) well, that's what I want to be as a 15 year old, you know? So I went back to asana and I just could not connect with it. Asana, the way that I was being it was being offered to me felt too constraining. It felt too much like the dance world that I was kind of rebuking. Um, and, but then I picked it back up in college. Um, Bikram was my gateway drug back into the practice. <laughs> and I did that fairly religiously for about two to three years, you know, like sometimes twice a day, make sure, making sure I would go every day. And then I moved up to San Francisco and I couldn't find a studio that taught the method in a kind way. Um, I was in Santa Cruz when I first started doing Bikram and the teachers really, they didn't really follow the script and they were just really sweet and really compassionate. And it really felt like a bhakti class, to be honest. So then I came up to San Francisco and couldn't find anything. And, And one afternoon, a friend invited me to Stephanie Snyder's yoga class on a Sunday in at Yoga Tree Valencia, which is a long time ago now, I think like 10 years ago now. And I went and I couldn't see her. It was really, really crowded. I sat down and I heard her voice and I just immediately knew she was my teacher. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into the doorway of back into yoga as an active part of my life. And Stephanie is really big into philosophy Um, And so I was introduced to sort of the more academic principles through her, or reintroduced, I should say. Um, And then I studied with her a lot and, you know, have gone on to study with other people. The master's in philosophy and religion was a real (laughs) curveball for me and my whole family. I mean... Every time we get together, my family's like, I can't believe you're the one who went to grad school. (laughs) And I try... I try not to be offended, and then I say, (laughs) yeah, I know, me too. And that actually, my program specifically was philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. Nice. And I had already been studying astrology with my stepmother um, for a couple years, and I kind of really was looking for more direction. I was teaching yoga, and I somehow wanted to blend what I was learning with the yoga practices again in an effort to sort of explain this stuff to people in a non-academic way so that they could see that it was reasonable and applicable. Mm-hmm. And then I finished my master's and just went back to teaching regular asana classes and workshops. And I would say only in the last two years, maybe two to three years, have I really gotten to use the gifts the master's program gave me, which were much more about structure and discipline and dedication 
um, and how to read philosophy too. That was a major one mm-hmm. because my master's was in Western philosophy, but it gave me so many tools. So yeah, that's kind of how, that's kind of a long story. <laughs> no, it's <was laughs> perfect. Who I am and where I'm at. It just sounds like you must have been a yogi in your past life to have just come into this life and been exposed to yoga at such a, a young age. And then you have this whole beautiful journey of it kind of becoming your own and you discovering yeah. it again on your own. And that is so beautiful and uh, really rare. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time not being jealous because I wish I grew up with <laughs> um, parents who took me to yeah. go sit at the feet of gurus. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Really, really unique and, and beautiful. You know, just interesting about, like, I must have been a yogi in a past life or whatever the case may be. I mean, I firmly believe, obviously, in past lives, and I'm pretty sure I was into yoga for a while, Um, but when I, the first time I read the Bhagavad Gita and Krishna talks about how, if you're born into a household of yogis, it's very auspicious and it's your duty then to kind of carry on that lineage. Mm. And so the first time I read the Gita, I think it was right before I did my first teacher training or it was during my first teacher training, but that just hit so hard. It just landed as truth. So I really kind of understood that it's my responsibility to kind of carry this on however I can in the best way I can. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. So beautiful. So with that in mind then, this next question is kind of something that we always talk about with people and we're always trying to get um, people to see with yoga because most people in the West associate yoga with the physical practice uh, and the postures. So what would you say Mm -hmm. in your words the practice of yoga is really meant for? Um, I think it really depends on where you're at in your life. It used to be in India that there were different phases of your life. So you would bring yoga into those phases in the appropriate way, meaning like um, there's the time you were a student and then there was the time that you got married and had a family. And then there was the time that you, after the family and the kids were grown up, that you could just dedicate yourself to spiritual practice. So, um, I think that for us, it's more about like, what are you doing with your life? Like if you're a householder, which most of us are, I mean, I don't know any aesthetics who are like listening to podcasts. You know? <laughs> right. but, um, um, if you're a householder, then the yoga practice is about connecting. Ultimately the yoga practice is about connecting, remembering the highest self and remembering that everything is just a manifestation of the highest self so anytime we look at anything, we're looking at God. Like that is the true meaning of Tantra is God reuniting with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that's the essence of it. But I think that that sounds really scary for a lot of people and undoable. So if I'm explaining yoga to a householder, then I talk a lot more about following the yamas and the niyamas. Really basic, but, you know, um, Dharma Mitra said, no, says no yamas, no yoga. Like, if you don't understand the fundamentals, what are you doing? And those Um, who don't know what yama and niyama is, could you just give a brief? Yeah. Yeah. So the yamas are our sort of moral restraints um, within a society between ourselves and other people. And the niyamas are our personal restraints. Um, So an example of a yama is kindness or non-harming. Another one is truth. 
And then examples of the niyamas would be um, like cleanliness in every way, like cleanliness of thought, cleanliness of body. Um, so th- those are the types of restraints that they represent. Mm. Um, and so when I, yeah, when I'm talking to students who are just starting to get interested, you know, I, I always pretty much explain yoga as reunion with the highest self and, and understanding that. But I just want people to be able to live lives where they suffer less. And I think that for most people, that starts with a basic understanding of the difference between little self and big self, which is why I start the book that way. Because I think if you can, if you can even begin to understand that concept, it can provide a lot, a lot, a lot of relief. Yeah, I noticed that in the beginning you talk uh, a lot about how to see God in all things, see the higher self in all things. And I feel like that, just like you said, that is one of the bigger struggles for a lot of us. Uh, I know it's a huge loaded question. Do you have any tips beyond what you were saying in the book? How do we see God in all things, in the people, the places, events? You say in the book, how to see others as an extension of self. How do we... What have you come across as a a way to apply that? Well, I don't know that this is going to be the most pleasing answer in the world (laughs) for our listeners because it's definitely not a quick fix. Um, But the fact that it isn't a quick fix means that if you can work on it, it's going to be a sustainable fix. Mm. But I think the biggest thing is undoing our Western morality around what God is. So in yoga philosophy, um, God might not even be an appropriate word. If you, if you associate God with um, dogmatic religion, then maybe using the word source or divine or highest awareness or pure awareness or inner light, something like that is going to be more helpful for you. I don't have the same association just because of like the graciousness in which I was raised. Um, So I don't have a problem with that word, but if that word is tricky for anybody, then you can just like swap it out with whatever makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the West we have, we have this really firm belief of God as good and God as bad. So therefore we only see God if we're even prone to to think in that way in the things that we deem as beautiful and good. And we think of all the things that are ugly or quote unquote bad as evil. Mm -hmm. And so it's really like the first step is really unlearning those kind of boundaries of of what good and bad are because those are completely subjective. Mm. So as is seen by why there are different laws in different countries that make total sense to that country and that population and make zero sense to us, you know, um, because everything is, uh, what they call in Sanskrit, it's mitya. Everything is arbitrary. Right. It's um, all relative. All the knowledge that, that, yeah, all the knowledge that we tend to base our ideas off of, is actually knowledge that could change at any second rather than uh, deep truth. So I think the first step is kind of trying to understand that God is neither good nor bad. It just is. Mm-hmm. And it just is exactly what is going on. It's just the energy that animates everything in the universe. 
And so ultimately, um, in like in Hinduism, they use love as the, the word love is kind of the ultimate expression. But, you know, like in Buddhism, they use the word emptiness. So um, it just, if, if you have more of a leaning towards sort of that bhakti, devotional, loving nature, then having the end goal be pure, unconditional love might make more sense to you. Um, my point being that it does always, it is supposed to end in a place of righteousness, that everything does come from a place of righteousness. But that doesn't mean that the things we see that we dislike are not God in some way. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. And and I just love how even like in the title of the book it's just like it's not like find happiness. It's it's just suffer less. And no. and in yeah. in what you're talking about right now and seeing God in all things, you're just saying basically like we're going to suffer less if we just remove all the labeling and can just be present with what is. And right. I I just love that cuz it's so simple and it's so easy and it and it almost just feels like it's, it's like, how come we didn't know this? Like, it's just right. so, it's just so simple. Just be right. with what is. Yeah. When you say that too, it reminds right. me of like the Buddha teaching, you know, when they asked him like, you've become enlightened. What did you gain? And he said, I didn't gain anything. I just removed anger. I lost desire. I, you know, he released attachment. Right. So it's kind of funny. It's more so an undoing rather than or acquiring. Doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole yoga practice is an undoing mm. in in small and major ways. Like, even if you just want to talk about asana, it's an undoing of stress patterns. It's an undoing of physical blockages. It's an undoing of the idea that your body and your mind are separate from each other. Mm. And then if you want to take it into meditation or into philosophy, svadhyaya, self-study, all these things, then you can kind of correlate that on an even deeper level. But I feel like at every point in the practice... It's undoing something. It's letting go of something. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And in your book a lot, as we go through this undoing, you talk about how we're coming more into knowing our dharma or connecting with our dharma and um, dharma meaning purpose in our lives. So how does like this practice get us more in touch with our dharma? Or could you just maybe explain what that really truly means? Because a lot of people feel like, you know, they might not know what their purpose is. And I feel like you give a really um, comforting explanation that we all have a, a, a purpose and how yoga is really um, a pathway to connecting with that. Yeah. Um, so from the yogic perspective, um, if you didn't have work to do that needed to be done, that only you could do, you would not be born. So part of that is um, the samskaras, the etchings and the attachments uh, that past karma has brought up. We have to work through the karma of past lives, the action and the effects of those actions from past lives. Um, And all of that karma that we come into this life with sets us up for exactly what we're meant to be working on in this life. And so one of the things that I love about this idea of dharma the word dharma can mean a lot of things um and in a big umbrella term it's kind of it's truth and then svadharma sva means self svadharma is personal truth or personal purpose and actually the word dharma the root of the word means 
to hold up or to sustain. So your dharma, your purpose is, re- is really the sustaining fire that lights your way. Um, I think we all kind of see that like people who feel purposeless are kind of, you know, lost. And then people who feel like they have a really clear purpose have a pathway through which they get to navigate all of their actions or funnel all of their actions. Um, I think that your dharma, and I talk about this in the book probably more clearly than I'm about to say it, um, but your dharma is definitely something that you're passionate about. Um, We have this idea that we're not supposed to love the work that we do, which kind of couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, no one is born just to sort of get by and go through the motions. That's not the point of life. Mm. Um, we're all, we all come into this life with very specific gifts, and we have these gifts so that we can do very specific work. Now, one of the hang-ups that people have is that they then think that that means that their work should be on a very grand scale, or it should be something very noticeable, um, or it should be something that um, garners a lot of attention. But like Swami Satchidananda talks a lot in his, I think it's in his commentary on the Gita, it's either that or in the sutra, his commentary on the sutras, the other sutras. He talks a lot about how every job needs to be done. And like the person who is ruling the kingdom isn't, more righteous than the person who is emptying the trash cans. Um, The person, they say that the person, the most righteous person is the person who does whatever work they have to do in in the name of God, for Mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Um, So one thing about the Dharma, your Dharma, is that it's always, always ultimately in service of something other than yourself. So, um, for instance, I have a very good friend who is a jeweler. I, for, there's not one part of me that thinks she should not be a jeweler and that she should start meditating every day. I mean, I do think she should start meditating every day, but, um, there's not one part of me that thinks that her work isn't important to the world because beauty makes people happy, you know, Mm -hmm. and, Um, and jewelry can be a part of that. And she crafts things by hand really beautifully, but she's not doing it for self-satisfaction. She's doing it because she wants to provide beautiful things for people so that they can feel more enlivened or so that they can feel a little bit more confident or whatever the case may be. But so I have full faith that that is her dharma. That is her purpose. Um, because it's not, only self-satisfying right so if you're doing something that you absolutely love and you're like this is for sure my dharma if you look back at it and you can't answer who is this helping besides me then it's most likely not your dharma (laughs) (laughs) that is a brilliant question and something to examine in um all things that we're seeking after and it was cool too, you said, you know, sometimes your dharma is not necessarily 
what you will do for money. Sometimes it's what you do as the passion mm-hmm. on the side. And sometimes they're separate. I found that kind of cool mm-hmm. and interesting too to really point out to people is sometimes there can be a difference. The point is though, you will still feel fulfilled in your pursuit of say what you do for money as long as you're also taking time for your passion, for your dharma, for your that purpose. So that was, that was really cool. You spent exactly. a lot of time. And for those listening um, in the book, you you spend um, some time really explaining some great applications and you have like some Venn diagrams, a lot of great tools to find your purpose and to help people discover what it is that their soul was brought into this world to to do and to experience. And um, that was really cool. There's a few good lines in there about how, you know, you are you are here for purpose and every one of us is an aspect of you know, source that has a very specific reason for being here. And I also enjoy mm-hmm. like just that call to action to ask yourself, even when you're doing something like taking out the trash, how you're helping, how you're serving, because I feel like it, it kind of liberates you a lot because we, we can get, we can feel lost or purposeless when we feel like we're just doing an action or yeah. we're just doing a mm-hmm. job that we have no connection to. And there is always a way to see how we're all connected and how we're impacting each other. And it's so liberating when you are doing something as mundane as a, a task, like taking out the garbage when you're, when you, when you think, you know, I'm being of service, I'm helping somebody that just really uplifts the spirit and, and, and liberates us a, a, a lot in a lot of ways. So actually, how does yoga really bring us into true freedom? Because we all want to feel free. We all want to feel happy. And and we, we really love this line in the book that you said, true freedom is walking the path of your purpose, walking the path of your heart. So how is how does yoga help us to to connect with that? Yoga is about listening in. And I might say it in the book. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But my teacher, Stephanie, says that your dharma, your purpose is called a calling because it's literally calling out to you from your Mm -hmm. heart. So um, meditation and just taking the time to get still with yourself, that could be a moving meditation. Like I think you can get so many lessons just from asana. You know, I learned so, so, so much um, in my physical practice that wasn't physical. Um, that then lent itself to my philosophical pursuits. So I think that asana for sure has like taken over as the main, as what people think of as yoga, which is incorrect, but I don't want to downplay its importance. Mm. Um, but whatever helps you to hear that deep, deep, deep intuitive voice that we all have, um, is going to be meaningful not only for yourself, but for the people around you. It's going to be helpful for your entire community. Um, And so I think that, you know, there are all these different tools within the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, um, like the kleshas, the obstacles that we come up against. Um, The first one is ignorance. It's a vidya. And... So, like, one of the first things that can quell so much of that internal sort of raging of confusion is understanding the nature, like I said before, of the true self versus 
the ego self. And if you can remember that, you know, you, your, your little incarnation is one way that God has never been manifested before and wants to manifest, but ultimately will go back into the sea of consciousness. Um, then I just feel like it makes more sense as to why you would give all of your action away. Mm. Cause if you're, if you're just thinking that you're alone for yourself, you know, why, why would you do really hard work for anybody but you? So mm. having the basic understanding, I talk about it like the ocean in the book and, and a lot of books talk about it like the ocean, having the basic understanding that, um, a wave, a singular wave is still just part of a bigger sea, just like one being as a singular being is still just an extension of that first light makes it possible to give your work away because we're humans. So we want to get some sort of benefit from it. You Mm -hmm. know, we can't pretend like we're enlightened when we're not. So we have (laughs) some sort of attachment to the outcome. And so we need to make sure that that attachment is something that's beneficial and will benefit everybody rather than an attachment to something that is um, fleeting or uh, fulfilling on a sensory level. Mm. And on that note too, I really love this line about, you know, our work about our Dharma is the work will never be done. (laughs) And that's kind of an interesting thing to remember because I always think of enlightenment often feels like a final goal right? It Mm -hmm. seems like a final goal. And yet, it's kind of an interesting reminder to even transcend that concept and be like, well, but from other perspectives, it also will never be done. I would love to hear more on um, what you mean by that. Like, you know, like, how could you answer that? You know, is, is doesn't it doesn't it seem like enlightenment feels like this final goal that we're all striving for, but yet even that is a mis- conception and that is actually a distraction on the path yeah it's a really tricky one because the texts say that after years of practice and years of austerities um and given whatever karma it is that you come into this life with that there is the possibility of reaching enlightenment and that that should be the goal but that um once you get there you're unattached to that being the goal like you've let go of even that But that requires so much hard work and that requires so many lifetimes of that hard work um, and of banking a lot more good light karma than dark karma. Um, So I think it's important for us. I don't actually think that having enlightenment as your goal is a roadblock because we're going to hook on to something as our goal. That's just how we are. Like, let's just be real about how we are as human beings we're going to hook onto something. Mm. And so we need to hook onto something that's good. And eventually maybe we'll unhook ourselves from even that good thing, but at least then all of our work will be in the name of something beneficial Mm. and not something, you know, that's ultimately meaningless. Again, Swami Satyananda, he, if, if listeners haven't read his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, or um, the Yoga Sutras, I highly recommend it. He tells a lot of really beautiful stories, and it's really accessible and really beautiful. There's one part he talks about um, a washcloth with a stain on it, 
And he says, like, if the washcloth without the stain is pure consciousness, and then the stain is misunderstanding um, or ignorance, to get the stain out, you still have to put something else on it but you're putting something good on it mm. to rub away the bad. Interesting. I love that. That's so that's so beautiful yeah. and such good imagery to understand such a big concept. I think you said something yeah. on your Instagram stories um, recently that I really loved, and you said just the um, just the desire for uh, enlightenment is enough. Something like this. Yeah. I, I really like uh, that. Yeah, I just posted that yesterday. I think I, think I said... Just the, des- the desire for enlightenment and gearing your action in that direction is enough. Mm. And I think that, you know, to be totally honest, that was a message for myself as much as it was. <laughs> Aren't they all? Yeah, themselves. usually is. <laughs> yeah. Um, really well, because we forget how, you know, especially if we're, you're really on the path and you're really, really dedicated, sometimes it can just feel like I'm working so hard, I'm working so hard, like where is this enlightenment? Like, where is this peace? I felt it for a second. When am Mm. I going to get to feel it? And we just get so caught up in it that it's, we just have to remind ourselves, like, knowing that it's there should give us enough peace to continue our work. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm, Beautiful. And on that note, too, is there was this amazing line. It's towards the end of the book but it ties in perfectly with what we were just talking about. And I find it an amazing irony is there is no way for us to fail. Failure is a made up concept that we have mastered. Boom. (laughs) Such a good line. That one rocked me. And I loved that at the end because it's kind of like, oh, by the way, you're perfect no matter what. Don't worry. It's like we were just talking about that. So I would love if there's any, as we're kind of wrapping up, I feel like this is the most beautiful, powerful message for us all to remember every day is one more time. I want to say one more time because it's so good. There is no way for us to fail. Failure is a made up concept that we have mastered. That we have mastered. (laughs) Could you please expound more wisdom on that one? Because that was just, it's so moving. Man, I hope so. (laughs) Part of the difficulty for me in writing this book and in grad school is I tend to be a pretty, like, straightforward person. I just, like, say the thing. Mm. And my teachers, my professors were always like, no, Susanna, you have to say a lot more about it. I'm like, but this is it. That's it. (laughs) um, And so, yeah, I, I think it would take far too long to try to untangle why it is that failure is what we've hooked ourselves onto. Mm. Um, I think because we, I mean, it comes from comparison. It comes from identification with the ego. When you identify with the ego, then you are inherently going to compare yourself to other people. And then we remember the bad far better than we remember the good. And so we're just going to remember the failures over and over and over. Mm. And every time, every time we do remember a failure, we are reaffirming in our mind, I'm a failure. And there's no way to fail because going back to one of the first things we talked about, like there just is, you know, Mm. like good, bad, success, failure, all of these things are totally arbitrary that are made up by whatever construct the culture is built upon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
God just is. Everybody just is. Things just are. And this makes people very angry because, for instance, let's just take our current president for an example, shall we? I feel like how can we get through this podcast without, wow. <laughs> without talking about him? Right after he was elected, so many students came up to me and asked how they could remain yogic and loving towards a person they hate so much. Mm. This is a great question, and my response to them was that you can really dislike, really disagree with, hate, even if you want to use that word, a person's actions, but you can never hate the being. Mm. Like, the internal part never fails. Mm -hmm. Our actions might not live up to the best part of ourselves, and if you want to call it a failure, if that, like, somehow propels you to do more virtuous action, then call it a failure, you know? Mm. Words are just words that are pointing to the feeling. They're not actually, like, the thing itself. But the essence of who you are, the essence of who I am, the essence of who Donald Trump is, that thing can never fail because it has, it has only good assigned to it. Mm-hmm. It has only light assigned to it. It also has dark assigned to it just by virtue of the fact that if there is light, there is dark. But dark doesn't mean bad. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one of the main, like, that's how, that's where we get caught up in, in this whole failure thing. Is it's like, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. Rather than, this is different, this is different, this is different, this is different. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that evil in the world shouldn't be stamped out, you know? I My personal belief is that when there is, like, evil reigning supreme in the world, it is there to wake us up to take action. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I think that there, it's there, it's saying, like, we've gone so far off our dharmic path that we're, like, God is just going to send us, the universe is just going to send us something massive so that we get our heads out of our asses and, like, try to get us back on course, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not that evil and cruelty should just be tolerated, but it is that you have to have compassion for the deepest part of even the most cruel person. Yep, absolutely. That's the work. Perfect. And all of this yeah. just comes back to down to again and again and again everything you're saying is just this undoing this undoing this undoing and removing all these labels removing all these judgments and just like you said it's this is different this is different this is different um it just is it just is it just is and this like ultimate presence and it it really just your entire book is really helpful to navigating the the deeper practices of yoga to ultimately suffer less and Mm -hmm. it's all undoing and it's, and it's all also that Dharma, that, that giving it away. And I just appreciate everything you're putting out into the world so much and making all of this knowledge so much more accessible to people on how to use yogic practices to live a more peaceful life it's it's truly amazing and we really really appreciate you 
Well, thank you. I really love all the content you guys are putting out as well. I think your message is great and so important. And I'm so happy that you guys are doing this podcast. And I feel really honored and humbled that you asked me to be a part of it. So thank you very much. Thank you. And any of our listeners who are finding this information um, just hitting your soul, you can look up Susanna Friedman on Instagram, on her website, Susan Fried- Susanna Friedman Yoga. And you have an upcoming retreat in Rishikesh um, coming up that I am totally looking into. And she also has her book um, yeah, right there on come. her website. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> It's like on my freaking manifest list. Like I literally have it <laughs> on a list. Sell it, I'm going to sell it really hard right now, but only if you're like a spiritual junkie. If you're not <laughs> a spiritual junkie, this will not be a selling point. But we're going to be in Rishikesh for Shivaratri which is wow. a once yearly festival celebrating Shiva. And I have heard, I haven't, um, com- I don't know for sure, but I've heard the Dalai Lama is also going to be in Rishikesh for that week. Whoa. Cool. So it's going to be a pretty special time. Wow. Well, I'm definitely going to be um, keeping an eye on this, looking into it and figuring out how I can make this um, possible for me. So if any of our listeners are feeling like they want to just go dive deeper into all of this work that Susanna has been talking about, you can be live in person with her in India, maybe with the Dalai Lama. So (laughs) make sure you check this out. I'm a Dalai Lama. I just call him DL for sure. Yeah, no big deal. We're just going to hang with DL and Rishikesh, and um, it's going to yeah. be, yeah, no big deal. So <laughs> make sure to check that out. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. We love you. We appreciate you. And thanks to all of our listeners who, who have been here. Oh, thank you, guys. All right. Thank you so much, Susanna. And uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys. Love you guys. And we shall see you next week. Namaste. Namaste, guys. Thank you so much.